If you look at North Korea, this guy, this may, I mean, he's like a maniac, okay? Kim Jong-un, he really has been uh, very honorable. One of those two things. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Take your pick. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle, Washington on KODX. Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All around very swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, last week, the U.S. and North Korea finally announced the date and location for the landmark scheduled summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. But does Donald Trump even know what he actually hopes to achieve with this historic summit? His administration over the weekend gave wildly conflicting ideas about the U.S. position as both Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton appeared on Sunday shows to offer very different ideas of what the U.S. actually hopes to achieve In the meantime, the announcement of the June 12 meeting in Singapore came as Donald Trump announced his intention to violate the anti-nuclear agreement with Iran by pulling the U.S. out of that hard-fought landmark pact between Iran, the U.S., U.K., Germany, France, China, and Russia. So... Uh, How will Trump's withdrawal and violation of the Iran deal now affect his negotiation leverage with North Korea's Kim? And will that summit even now happen at all? A report uh, just before we go to air air here uh, suggests that the North may actually be considering calling the entire thing off thanks to the U.S.-South Korean military exercises taking place on the peninsula this week. We will speak shortly with the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs under President Obama to learn a whole bunch of stuff along those lines uh, that I hope someone is discussing with President Trump right around now, but who really knows? Uh, also, Desi Doyen will be here with a Green News report. A, Hello, Desi. Hi, a fantastic Green News report, I should say. 
We'll see. Um, <laughs> that uh, and actually, uh, yeah, some important. It's certainly an important green news report because uh, we have a, a new report about widespread water contamination across the entire U.S. Yep. That the Trump administration is refusing to release to the public. So. That'll be swell. Uh, in the meantime, uh, before we get to all of that, Angie Coiro filling in for us last week discussed the confirmation hearings in the uh, in the U.S. Senate for CIA Director nominee Gina Haspel, who ran a secret CIA prison in Thailand after 9-11, where the agency carried out brutal uh, torture before she eventually signed off on the destruction of videotaped evidence of that torture. And at those hearings last week, Haspel refused to condemn the torture that she oversaw or that the uh, or, or the others who carried it out. She even refused to concur that torture itself was immoral when she was asked about it in the public portion of those uh, Senate hearings. But with her confirmation now hanging in the balance, Haspel appears to be modifying her position, her public position anyway. According to ABC News, Haspel asserted for the first time publicly on Tuesday that the CIA's torture program was a mistake that ultimately, quote, did damage to our officers and our standing in the world. Well, that's nice. Haspel's significant new statement in a letter to the ranking Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Mark, uh, uh, Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, now all but assures that she will be confirmed, according to Senate aides, reported by NBC. Shortly after her letter was released, Warner announced that he would vote for Haspel. He had found her uh, to, to be, quote, more forthcoming regarding her views on the interrogation program during one-on-one -on -one meetings and in a closed-door session before the Senate Intel Committee. And so he had asked her to, quote, memorialize those comments in writing, the comments that she apparently would not give in the open hearing. Democratic Senators Heidi Heitkamp and Bill Nelson uh, also announced after the release of the letter on Tuesday that they would support her nomination. In uh, newly released written answers, Haspel also said she learned lessons from an infamous mistake made by the agency, the wrongful kidnapping of Khalid al-Masri, a German citizen who was abducted in Macedonia and tortured, he says, in a secret CIA prison in Afghanistan. Uh, other terror suspects were, con uh, were kidnapped by the CIA during that period using a uh, flawed legal justification, says Haspel, without explicitly detailing what her role was in the so-called renditions. It's interesting that she's also, as uh, deputy, Sec uh, deputy CIA director right now, she's uh, essentially the one who approves what gets released about her own role in all of this, what gets released publicly, what gets declassified. Uh, she's in charge of that. Uh, that's nice that Must she be, gets to uh, decide. Yeah, nice little setup for you. And then all you have to do to get these uh, Democratic senators is just to say, you know, hey, I changed my mind. I don't think that way anymore. OK? You're so cynical, Desi Doyen. Uh, she also affirmed uh, in her written answers that the CIA believes Iran is complying with the nuclear deal that President Donald Trump withdrew from and violated in the bargain. 
She also uh, says she agrees with the uh, Senate, uh, the intelligence community assessment that Russia interfered with the 2016 presidential election. In the letter to Warner, Haspel took a stand that she repeatedly declined to take, however, during her confirmation hearing when she was asked over and over to pass judgment on that CIA program that, uh, as NBC says, many believe was a departure from American values. She avoided answering that question, saying instead that she supports the current law that bans brutal interrogations across the U.S. government. She wrote in her letter, while I won't condemn those that made these hard calls and I have noted the valuable intelligence collected, the program ultimately did damage to our officers and our standing in the world. Should be noted here that many, many disagree that there was any valuable intelligence collected under the uh, torture program by the CIA. She said, with the benefit of hindsight, my experience as a senior agency leader, the enhanced interrogation program is not one the CIA should have undertaken. She told senators something similar during her testimony in closed session last week, according to two people who were present uh, present for the uh, testimony. But Haspel wanted to avoid saying it publicly for fear of impugning the many people who still work at CIA who had some involvement in the post 9-11 program. In other words, the uh, war criminals like herself who condoned, carried out, covered up that torture in violation of U.S. law, international law, and if there is such a thing, God's law of morality. Warner and other Democrats wanted to hear her say it publicly, and now they have. And so the U.S. under Donald Trump, who has uh, said, I would bring back waterboarding, and I'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. Mr. Trump, thank you. The U.S. will now have an avowed war criminal in charge of the CIA unless someone somehow in the U.S. Senate comes up with a way to block her, which does not look likely at all. Meanwhile, speaking of war criminals and the lack of uh, morals and moral authority, the Trump White House on Tuesday said Israel is not to blame for the now more than 60 Palestinian protesters shot dead by Israeli troops on the Gaza border on Monday. An act of violence carried out while Ivanka Trump and her husband, Jared Kushner, led festive celebrations in Jerusalem for the relocation of the U.S. embassy there at the very same time. And the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. on Tuesday said Israel had reacted with restraint in its military response to those protesters. That's restraint. Yep. Firing and, on unarmed people, killing them. Yep. And uh, she dismissed suggestions that the violence was caused by the opening of the new uh, new U.S. embassy in Jerusalem. The uh, she said these uh, she offered these comments at an emergency meeting of the Security Council called by Kuwait to discuss the unrest at Israel's border with Gaza that resulted in the murder of some 60 Palestinians on Monday alone, one of them a baby, by the way, who died from exposure to tear gas that Israel had launched by a drone that was flown over the border into Gaza. Thousands were wounded after Israeli soldiers and snipers fired into the crowd of demonstrators. The debate at the U.N. underscored the gulf between the U.S. and Israel on one side and most every other country across the globe on the other. 
in their assessments of uh, six weeks of escalating tensions at the Gaza border, about 40 miles from Jerusalem, from U.S. allies to adversaries. Most ambassadors added their opposition to the U.S. embassy move to their remarks on the violence, according to The Washington Post. Bolivia's envoy said the United States, which supports the occupying power, that would be Israel, has become an obstacle to peace. It has become part of the problem, not part of the solution. Bolivia's envoy said Karen Pierce, the British ambassador, expressed support for an investigation into Monday's killings and then stated London's position on the U.S. embassy's opening. She said the status of Jerusalem should be determined in a negotiated settlement between Israel and Palestinians, and Jerusalem should ultimately be the shared capital of the Israeli and Palestinian states. Similarly, the envoys from China, from Sweden, and the Netherlands also went out of their way to reiterate their government's positions that Jerusalem's status should be left to negotiations and their intention to keep their embassies in Tel Aviv until then. Ambassador Haley of the U.N. Ambassador Haley, speaking at the beginning of the session, said the location of the U.S. embassy has no bearing on whatever Israelis and Palestinians might negotiate. And she described the opening of the facility as, quote, a cause for celebration. She said it reflects our sovereign right to decide the location of our embassy. Importantly, moving our embassy to Jerusalem also reflects the reality that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Recognizing this reality makes real peace more achievable, not less. I want some of what she's smoking. (laughs) Many ambassadors uh, recognized Israel's right to defend itself and denounced Hamas for encouraging protesters to storm the gate. All, however, said that Israel bears a responsibility to keep its response proportionate and not use live ammunition on civilians as they did, apparently, on thousands of them on Monday. Lethal force should be exercised with restraint, said uh, Sweden's representative to the U.N. Uh, restraint? What's that? We've, uh, we've, we've got a torturer lined up to be the next CIA director, don't you know? We, we don't know much about restraint in this country. I'm sad, very sad to say. The French ambassador said the violence now uh, threatens to engulf the entire region. He warned the situation in the Middle East, quote, is close to a perfect storm. What is happening in Gaza only reinforces radical and potentially terrorist organizations in the region. The White House itself has refrained from calling for Israel to exercise restraint, and it characterized the use of live ammunition on the protesters as an act of self-defense. The actions of Israeli troops and the U.S. refusal to even express regret for the loss of life has left both of those countries isolated amid growing condemnations that Israel used excessive force against the protesters, uh, many of whom were unarmed. A U.N. human rights official on Tuesday called for an independent probe of the thousands of injuries and the more than 100 deaths, none of them to Israelis, by the way. Since uh, since March 30, the uh, spokesman for the U.N. Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Rupert Colville, told reporters in Geneva, we urge maximum restraint. Enough is enough, he said. 
Lethal force should be a measure of last, not first, resort. So things in the Middle East are going very well under Donald Trump's command. Perhaps the outlook is brighter on the Korean Peninsula for the great negotiator. Uh, Don't pull that Nobel Peace Prize out for him just yet. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Michael Fuchs joins us next to discuss that and much more on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The big news events in U.S. foreign policy over the past few days. President Donald Trump's reversal on Sunday morning on the trade ban with the Chinese electronics company ZTE after their business was all but shut down following their violation of trade sanctions with Iran. Trump's wavering on the definition of denuclearization as a demand in the upcoming summit with North Korea and Israel's killing of more than 60 Palestinian protesters while Trump's emissaries celebrated the opening of the new embassy in Jerusalem. They all have one thing in common, writes Slate's foreign policy journalist Fred Kaplan. They stem from Trump's unwillingness to ponder the consequences of his actions in countries that he does not understand. Some commentators have speculated that Trump imposed the ban on China's ZTE in the first place as leverage to get China to relax its tariffs on U.S. agricultural products. If true, uh, writes Kaplan, it's odd that Trump would publicly back off the ban before locking China into its side of the deal. Others guess that Trump's apparent 180 from his America first policy against the nation he's long accused of stealing American jobs might be related to some side deal between Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping on the upcoming summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong Un. Elizabeth Economy, director of Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, argued essentially Trump started a trade war but is now negotiating to get right back to where he started. As for the upcoming summit with North Korea with just four weeks to go, Trump's position appears to be alarmingly uncertain. The official line until recently was that Kim must agree to the, quote, complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of his nuclear arsenal and infrastructure. Last month, when asked what he meant when he uses the phrase denuclearization, Trump said, quote, it means they get rid of their nukes. Very simple. 
However, in recent days, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has suggested that it might be sufficient for Kim to get rid of merely his long-range nuclear-armed missiles. In other words, Kim can keep his nukes as long as he can't fire them at the U.S. On Fox News Sunday uh, this past week, Pompeo said, quote, America's interest here is in preventing the risk that North Korea will launch a nuclear weapon into L.A. or Denver or into the very place we're sitting here this morning. He said, that's our objective. That's the end state that the president has laid out. But that wasn't where Trump began with his insistence on North Korea's total denuclearization. In fact, it seems Trump still doesn't actually know what he wants with just under one month before the scheduled meeting with the North Korean leader. Secretary Pompeo's stated position on Fox appeared to be at direct odds with that of Trump's national security adviser, John Bolton. On the very same Sunday on CNN, Bolton not only held firm on complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of all aspects of North Korea's nuclear program, but also said that Trump would take a look at the country's ballistic missiles and chemical and biological weapons. There may be, in other words, writes Kaplan, a battle for Trump's soul. Who knew he had one Uh, that in the intramural skirmishing over the demands to be made at the Singapore summit with Kim on June 12. Trump has worsened the situation by sending a clear signal that he is desperate for a deal. He has called Kim, who Kaplan argues is perhaps the most opaque and murderous dictator on the planet, an open and honorable man and has raised hopes not just for a deal, but for a peace treaty that formalizes the end of the Korean War, which Kim would argue and America's allies would protest, also would end the need for U.S. military forces in and possibly near South Korea. Reading the tea leaves then, TPM's Josh Marshall sees a possible deal in which North Korea gives up missiles that can reach the U.S., gets rid of chemical and biological weapons, and perhaps limits some ability to manufacture new nuclear weapons, But in each case, North Korea gets an end of sanctions, partial withdrawal of U.S. troops from South Korea and an undetermined amount of economic aid, all of which is pretty much the deal that the Bill Clinton administration made 20 years ago before it was scuttled by the George W. Bush administration. But now, if this uh, if a deal that looks something like this goes through, we would have the addition that North Korea has nuclear weapons still and U.S. troops would be leaving the region. Moreover, with the scuttling of the Iran deal by Donald Trump last week, Kelsey Davenport, director of nonproliferation policy at the Arms Control Association, argues that North Korea's hand has actually greatly strengthened in negotiations with the breaking of that Iran deal. She says, I'm worried that walking away from the Iran deal will make Trump more desperate for a dramatic breakthrough at the summit with Kim Jong-un so he can prove that he is the master of the deal. Davenport told The Washington Post that she thinks all of this increases North Korea's leverage, not Trump's. Since Kim knows Trump is desperate for a deal, Kaplan argues, at Slate he will come to Singapore feeling, rightly or not, that he can sit back and wait for the President of the United States to make concessions. 
But perhaps all of those policy wonks are over-worrying. Donald Trump, after all, is the great dealmaker, so what could possibly go wrong here? Well, here to help us understand more of what could possibly go wrong is Michael Fuchs. He is the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs under President Obama and before that, a special advisor to the Secretary of State for Strategic Dialogues under then-Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. He is now a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Michael Fuchs, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hey, great to be with you. Great to have you here. I, I got a lot to ask you about uh, regarding North Korea, including some breaking news just over the wire uh, within the past hour regarding the planned summit. But uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to get your real quick read on this Seeming flip-flop by Trump on uh, on China and ZTE uh, after China had warned that this uh, American ban could could put them put ZTE out of business. Trump seems to have backpedaled on that. He tweeted over the weekend that he wanted to help President Xi in China uh, and and ZTE to get back in business and fast. Quote, too many jobs in China lost. Uh, I'm happy to see Trump backing off his hardline sanctions against China, but it's a clear reversal of his America first policies, his hardline attacks on China for stealing American uh, jobs, as he's long described China. Uh, do you have any idea, based on your sources or simply knowledge of the region, what what is actually going on there? Well, look, uh, Donald Trump changing his mind uh, on a big issue uh, of American policy means it must be a day that ends in a Y, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just impossible to know what he's thinking on any given day. And on this issue, it's sort of, there are so many different angles to it that it sort of boggles the mind, right? There is the aspect to this issue that is about the sanctions, which they had supposedly violated uh -huh. in the past, I believe, on Iran uh, and North Korea, um, that he's potentially now saying pulling back on, uh, willing to, right? There is the question of the national security threat that ZTE poses, and numerous national security officials have stated, like many state-run or state-backed entities in the telecom field in China, um, they are real fears that companies like ZTE are ways to help provide the Chinese government with information on people who are using their uh, their devices. Mm -hmm. um, there's, of course, the question of uh, why on earth he is talking about his goal of trying to save jobs in China, uh, um, <laughs> which I thought was sort of the opposite of his <laughs> campaign pledges uh, on this issue. Uh, and then at the end of the day, we're talking about his negotiating tactics, whether it's with China on trade, whether it's with China as using this as a point of leverage uh, for the North Korea stuff. It, it, so many different aspects to this issue here. Uh, it's impossible to know what he's actually thinking, which leads me to believe he doesn't, I think, actually have a consistent message or strategy uh, when it comes to this. Um, but he saw something that was concerning, about it, and he decided he wanted to use this as potentially what he thought as a point of uh, leverage. Um, but where that goes, honestly, is anyone's guess. And I do understand that uh, banning uh, uh, ZTE also hurts American companies that make a lot of money in their work with ZTE, so that I guess could throw that into the pot of, of, of speculation here regarding this guy. Let's uh, go to North Korea here. We're just getting uh, word that uh, North Korea is now threatening to cancel the uh, upcoming U.S. summit entirely. Um, 
Uh, as well as uh, it looks like they've canceled talks that were scheduled for Wednesday with South Korea over the South Korea U.S. military drills that have been scheduled, uh, have been uh, ongoing since last Friday. They're supposed to go for two two weeks. They include about 100 warplanes. Uh, what do you make of that? I know that this is just breaking. We don't know much, but any idea what's going on there? Yeah, well, look, I, as you said, I think we need to wait and see what kind of information this really is and whether it can be confirmed. Uh, there's a lot of straight media reports to that of the region on North Korea, especially in the last few months. Um, but I will say that, uh, true or not, uh, let the games begin. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're now in the midst of high-stakes, high-pressure diplomacy uh, at the highest levels um, uh, of an unprecedented nature, right, between the United States uh, and North Korea. Um, and so the games that we've seen played by North Korea um, and the United States and others in the region uh, jostling and jockeying for position and leverage with one another uh, going back, you know, 25 years and beyond mm-hmm. with the nuclear program um, is just going to intensify now. Um, it's frankly been a little bit, I feel like, of a, of a, of a reprieve over the last few months on this stuff uh, since the diplomacy broke out where everyone has sort of been, you know, praising one another mm-hmm. um, uh, in a rush to get to the table. Um, but now I think what we're going to see is, again, some of that real hard-nosed negotiating uh, happening. And I wouldn't be surprised if this report turns out to be true that that's what the North Koreans are doing. They are going to begin to test uh, the United States and see, you know, how badly does the United States actually want the diplomacy. Um, remember, it was actually Donald Trump who sort of left out to everyone's surprise and agreed to a meeting mm-hmm. with uh, Kim Jong-un. Um, and so this very well could be the North Koreans beginning to, to you know, to test the Americans. I, and I got to tell you, I, uh, <laughs> not only did Donald Trump jump out, but he jumped out and it was weeks before it uh, seems like North Korea even responded uh, to confirm they had any interest in a meeting at all. I've, I've been very dubious about the idea of this summit even happening at all. The administration has been talking about it as if it's a done deal. Uh, do you have confidence? And I jotted down this question to ask you before this news broke, but do you have confidence that this meeting will actually take place, setting aside whether a deal can be struck or not? Just will this meeting happen? Well, look, I'd say it's a bad bet to try to place money uh, on something, uh, uh, being confident about something related to North Korea. <laughs> um, uh, that's just a bad bet to make. Um, that said, I think that there is at this point a uh, much better chance that the, uh, this meeting happens than it does not happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. I think, one, this is sort of where the momentum is right now um, on all sides, on Kim Jong-un, uh, from President Trump and from President Moon of South Korea. They all want this and they're all moving in this direction. Uh, so I think that's one. I think the second one is that while we were, I think, uncertain about the, uh, the details of this and whether or not it would happen. Mike Pompeo's two trips to North Korea over the last um, uh, six weeks, I think, have been the opportunity for the Trump administration to really confirm, mm. you know, face-to-face from the horse's mouth, if you will, uh, that this meeting is going to happen. Um, and the third reason is, I think, is that, honestly, I think that President Trump wants it, right? I think that President Trump sees things, as we know he does, uh, in terms of how they play publicly, mm-hmm. right? He wants a win. Uh, he wants to do things that are unprecedented, that his predecessors have never done before. And this meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un falls into all of those categories. And so I think, frankly, if I had to guess, I think that this is something that Trump now probably personally wants to happen. 
Does that make uh, uh, Kelsey Davenport uh, her argument that this actually increases that breaking the Iran deal uh, last week now actually increases leverage for the North Koreans that uh, you know Trump needs a deal here more than ever? Would you agree with her assessment on that? I absolutely share Kelsey's fears um, about this summit. Um, I think the Iran deal withdrawal definitely adds fuel to the fire here. And the potential danger, I think that there are lots of different dangers of this summit, but I definitely think that one of them is that Trump wants a deal. He wants to, you know, bring home victory, if you will. Um, and so he's going to want to try to spin this summit uh, as a success. And, uh, you know, I don't think that Trump is a very good negotiator. I don't think he understands the, the details of these issues, nor do I think he, frankly, has the interests of things like our U.S. allies uh, uh, at heart. Um, and so I think that I, it is a very good possibility that he will throw allies under the bus uh, um, in exchange for what looks like a, a good deal. Um, and so I definitely think that that is a very big fear. Uh, long before this uh, this past weekend's apparent contradictions by Secretary of State Pompeo and, and National Security Advisor Bolton that I mentioned about what sort of deal would be made, where you have uh, Pompeo saying, hey, as long as he can't hit us with a nuclear uh, missile, we're cool. And then you have Bolton saying, no, he's got to get rid of everything forever uh, when it comes to uh, his nuclear program. Long before all of that, experts in the region have been pointing out that North Korea and the Trump administration seem to have a very, very different definition of what denuclearization actually means. What does denuclearization mean uh, to North Korea when they talk about it versus the way the Trump administration seems to be regarding it, if you can figure out what the Trump administration is actually saying here? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. This is the ball game, right? Um, and it always has been with North Korea. Um, you know, I think that in the past, North Korea and the United States and its allies have had very different definitions of this, right? I think that in, uh, traditionally, North Korea believes that the goal of denuclearization is more or less code for a completely changed security environment on the Korean Peninsula. And that includes, right, the end of the U.S.-South Korea alliance, U.S. troops in South Korea going home, U.S. military equipment uh, um, going home, um, and then North Korea also will be able to, of course, stand down, right? That is a very different understanding than what people in the United States and many U.S. officials have traditionally understood the term denuclearization to mean, which is just referring to North Korea giving up its nuclear weapons and its entire nuclear program. Um, and this, of course, is the gap. This is the question of whether or not the two sides can find a mutually agreed upon understanding of this goal that they both can uh, agree on. And I think that what we're seeing from John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and President Trump just in the last few days is indicative of the problem that this administration has had on North Korea, but on other issues as well from day one, which is a lack of both message unity as well as a co coherent strategy. I mean, I think that they definitely do not have a unified message publicly about it, but what concerns me more is whether or not that is reflective of lack of a coherent internal strategy about what they want. And, and yeah, and I want to ask you about that specifically, but just to close the, the loop for now on this denuclearization, when North Korea is talking about it, they're talking, when they said they want denuclearization, they're saying, 
we'd like to get rid of potentially of our nuclear weapons, but that also means all nuclear weapons uh, out of South Korea, uh, U.S. Uh, move its uh, nuclear uh, weapons away. That's what they mean by total nu- denuclearization. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, that's right. Like, just as a perfect example of that, um, you know, the United States used to, used to have North Korea, nuclear weapons um, stationed in North Korea. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, in South Korea. Right. Um, and that the, I believe it was the George H.W. Bush administration, um, but it was years ago, made a decision to withdraw those nuclear, uh, um, nuclear weapons from uh, South Korea. Mm-hmm. But even still, uh, in the years since then, North Korea has continued to demand that the United States withdraw its nuclear weapons because it doesn't believe that the United States has actually done it. So that just is an illustration of just how far apart I think the two parties are. Uh, you argue in uh, in a white paper at American Progress that Kim is trying to divide the U.S. and South Korea. H- how so? How do you see him uh, doing that? And, and is there a possibility we'll be successful? Yeah, I, look, I think this is a, a goal that has been a goal of North Korea and North Korean leaders uh, since the Korean War, um, since the establishment of the U.S.-South Korea alliance. Mm-hmm. They believe that uh, in order to gain advantage uh, in the security situation in the peninsula, um, they need to create uh, political space, disagreements between uh, South Korea and the United States. And that the more they can create these disagreements and have those two countries, two allies, uh, not getting along with one another, the more opportunity there will be for Kim Jong-un and for North Korea uh, to gain benefits from one or the other uh, or both um, because they're not in a united front uh, pressuring North Korea. Um, and I think that Kim Jong-un is absolutely trying to do that right now. He's got a potentially uh, conducive environment for it. On the one hand, you've got President Moon of South Korea, whose instinct going back decades is to be much more engaged and open with North Korea. That's the school of thought he comes from in in South Korea. It's just sort of where he wants to be instinctually. Mm -hmm. At the same time, President Moon and President Trump are not uh, soulmates here. Uh, They are very, very different people and have very, very different views on this issue. Um, And, frankly, I think that President Moon is somewhat concerned about the commitment that Trump has to allies. He's criticized South Korea and U.S. alliances for decades. And I think that that has driven President Moon even more so to want to try to engage with North Korea to set the uh, agenda. So what does this all mean at the end of the day? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Say Kim Jong-un and and Donald Trump are sitting down together at the negotiating table, and Kim Jong-un tells Donald Trump, Mr. President, I am willing to give up my nuclear weapons in return for you ending the alliance with South Korea and taking home all American troops uh, from South Korea. Um, Whether or not that actually happens, uh, that were to happen, if Donald Trump said yes to Kim Jong-un, he has just sent a direct signal to Kim Jong-un about a potential lack of support for South Korea and the U.S. alliance. And that is something that Kim Jong-un can take and pocket to drive a further wedge. And so that is a concern, I think a real concern of this summit. And I think uh, just a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it reported that uh, Trump at one point wanted to pull all troops out of uh, out of South Korea? Yeah, we've had two reports just in the last... Uh, um, you know, he said this repeatedly since you know his campaign trail uh, days and earlier. But just in the last couple of months, we have one report where that John Kelly supposedly had to convince President Trump to not order withdrawal of the troops, um, and then another smaller report in the New York Times recently that said that Trump had actually ordered the Pentagon to begin developing options 
for uh, troop reduction like on the peninsula. Well, that sure shows his hand, I would think. Michael Fuchs, as a, uh, a special advisor to the Secretary of State for Strategic Dialogue during the Obama administration, you helped pre- prepare then-Secretary uh, of State Clinton for negotiations with various foreign governments around the world. There has, of course, been a hollowing out at the State Department in the Trump era. We don't even have, I don't think, still an ambassador to South Korea at this time. I don't even know if there's a nominee at this point. Uh, The top specialist on North Korea at the State Department left a few months back. Who is playing your role, Michael, uh, with this president and this secretary of state at this point, if anyone, in these uh, preparations for meetings with with Kim Jong-un? Is there anybody there or is this just completely ad hoc at this point? Well, look, I mean, I think that the, uh, you're absolutely right. The State Department has been hollowed out by the, the by Secretary Tillerson um, and the Trump administration. And it's a catastrophe in the number of people that you just named a few who have been forced to leave or decided to leave because they couldn't stand it anymore, is a genuine long-term uh, damage to, frankly, America's uh, national security. Um, it'll take a long time to, to fix that. Um, but I do think that on the North Korea front, the question is not so much about whether or not we have the right personnel uh, in place. It's whether or not the political leadership uh, in the White House um, is actually listening to them and allowing them to do their jobs. There are very, very good and highly capable and experienced professionals, foreign service officers and others, people who uh, I've had the pleasure of working with over the years, who know these issues better than almost anybody. Uh, and they're out there and they're doing their jobs. The they're, they're, still there. they're, they're, they're still there? They're still at the State Department to offer this advice to the president? And the they are. They are. Okay. Many of, some of them have left, like, for instance, the, uh, the, the, the Foreign Service officer you mentioned, Joe Yoon, who was the special representative for North Korea, just mm-hmm. left um, about a month ago. Um, and again, the ranks are absolutely depleted, and they don't have people who are the sort of senior people nominated by the White House and confirmed by the Senate in these key jobs, which is absolutely uh, a detriment. But again, in terms of the expertise and uh, the capability of the officials that we have in these jobs, our acting assistant secretary of state for East Asia, um, the acting deputy assistant secretary of state for uh, North Korea uh, and Korea, uh, these are highly capable and experienced, decades of experience uh, in Asia. These are good officers who can do a fantastic job at this. My question at the end of the day is whether or not, frankly, the White House and the political leadership of this administration are listening to their advice and, frankly, allowing them to go out and do the negotiating and do their jobs. Uh, that's something that I think that we had not seen a lot of uh, um, up-to-date uh, in this administration. So that's a big concern that I have. Uh, Mike, I've got uh, just another minute or two here. I want to try to sneak in two quick questions. North Korea, uh, if not Kim himself, uh, but the North, uh, has been dealing, have been dealing with U.S. presidential administrations for many decades. Trump, obviously, has not. Some suggest that that may actually be an advantage for Trump in that he's not bound by previous notions that have, you know, ultimately failed to prevent nuclearization by the North. (sighs) Trying to give any benefit of the doubt here. Is there any validity uh, to that whatsoever? I mean, it would be nice, after all, to see a secession of of hostilities or at least of tensions on the peninsula after more than, you know, 60 years since the armistice following the Korean War? Is is there anything to that argument that, you know, he's coming at this with fresh eyes and that there may be an advantage somehow there? Look, it's entirely possible. And uh, the, you know, I will be, if Donald Trump makes a verifiable, 
good deal with North Korea that achieves America, the interests of America and our allies, uh, you know, despite what I think about the president uh, um, and his policies, uh, I will be the first out there uh, to cheer him on um, uh, in getting that deal. Um, and uh, absolutely, you know, the fact that we have this summit meeting, it's not the way I would have done it. Um, but it's diplomacy, which is better than where we were a couple of months ago, talking about the potential for war. Yep. Um, and so there's an opening right now. Um, I think the real question, though, again, is whether or not they can get something that is a verifiable good deal. Mm. Um, and that takes a lot of hard work, and it takes a, usually a long period of time. Uh, so I'm willing, without a doubt, to give them, uh, to give them a chance here. Uh, I would like to see America succeed in this. Last question, uh, maybe not quite as optimistic. Uh, many obviously refer to this meeting as high stakes. Um, other than a potentially bad deal, like a, a non-verifiable one, as you describe, uh, for the U.S., what are the other dangers here that could play out as you see it? Should we, should we take Trump's threats of fire and fury against North Korea seriously at some point if things go south? What will, what will happen? What's the, what's the worst-case uh, scenario that you fear coming out of this? Yeah, look, I mean, I think there's a lot of dangers, obviously, uh, this, and I think one danger is exactly that. Uh, that President Trump will see this as sort of his one-time opportunity uh, to solve the problem. Uh, and that, you know, as John Bolton has said, you know, Donald Trump will size him up and see what he's willing to do um, and make a decision. Uh, and that is, unfortunately, not the way to actually uh, increase the chances for success. Uh, any diplomacy here is going to take a while. I see the summit meeting as more of a starting gun to a marathon of diplomacy uh, than sort of a culmination uh, um, of, uh, of this sprint. Um, and so the fear is that if President Trump actually does think like that, if he does see this as sort of a one-time opportunity, if he doesn't get what he wants, then he's going home. Um, the fear is that on the other side of that is a cliff. Um, and you've engaged in the highest level diplomacy possible, and you think that there's nothing that can be done on it, then I fear that they will begin looking once again at the military options here. And that obviously would be catastrophic. Yeah, and Donald Trump doesn't look like a marathon runner to me, but uh, maybe that's just me. Uh, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Michael Fuchs. Uh, follow him on the Twitters at Mike H. Fuchs, and uh, spell it carefully, that's F-U-C-H-S. And also uh, check out his uh, very helpful primer here, if you will, at AmericanProgress.org that he wrote with Abigail Bard, Making Sense of the Trump-Kim Summit. Very helpful uh, information there. I will link to that. Michael, really appreciate you joining us today. Hope you don't mind if we uh, bother you again be between now and the summit, if it happens and or thereafter. My pleasure. Happy to join again anytime. Thank you, sir. You know, I, I you know, I, I, I just hope, Des, that Donald Trump uh, has someone like Michael Fuchs to talk to about this. Oh, well, yeah. I, I feel like, and I'm sure I'm wrong, but I feel like I know more about North Korea. Just having studied up on it, studied for that interview and, and our other coverage, I feel like I know more about it than Donald Trump. And I hope to Christ that I'm wrong. Yeah, well, uh, I don't think you are, sad to say. I don't think that uh, Trump has any intellectual curiosity at all, much less when it comes to something like this. He's only interested in a win for himself, I think. I mean, this is a wildly uh, complicated issue. And so, you know, uh, Michael Fuchs wrote a very good uh, uh, white paper that I mentioned on that, uh, making sense of the Trump-Kim summit. I hope at least Donald Trump 
has read something like that because there's a lot of moving pieces to this. I fear he hasn't. Well, hope springs eternal, right? For now. All right. Quick break. And we are back with the Green News Report with Desi Doyen. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, Des, your uh, Green News report here coming up in a moment. I'm, I'm reminded, as much as Donald Trump has uh, pretended over the years that he uh, was against George W. Bush, didn't like the Bush administration. Yeah. Starting to, this administration is starting to sound more and more exactly like the Bush administration. The Bush administration is the one who uh, canceled the uh, the agreement with that uh, Bill Clinton had with North Korea. Oh yeah. The George W. Bush administration's EPA refused to open up that finding. That email uh, that said that uh, greenhouse gas emissions and climate change are an endangerment to human health. Yeah, they refused to open that email. They knew what was in it. That's why they refused to open it because <laughs> they would have to act on it. Yes. And now we kind of have something very similar going on at the EPA. To, yeah. You know, I agree with you. And it's it's like they took the Bush administration playbook and they, they turbocharged it as well. They learned their lessons from what they weren't able to accomplish last time. And now they're going for broke. Smash and grab. If they don't know about it, if the people don't know about it, nobody can act on it. And that's so. just one of the stories in our latest Green News Report. We're very grateful for Scott Pruitt's leadership and uh, I just I, I, uh, I would just tell you that um, uh, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt still has a job amid revelations EPA blocked reports showing widespread water contamination. New studies confirm global warming is rapidly intensifying hurricanes and their rainfall. Plus, California adopts landmark new solar building codes. All of that tyranny and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Today is the 50th birthday of EPA chief and endangered animal fracker Scott Pruitt. Personally, I'll be honoring Scotty by roasting polar bear kebabs over a plastic bottle bonfire. Happy birthday, Scott Pruitt. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we go away for a week, which is 
like three years in Donald Trump time, and <laughs> Scott Pruitt still has a job at the EPA? Yes, yes, he does. The most corrupt EPA administrator of all time? Yep. But we'll get to that in a moment. First, Trump administration aides blocked the publication of a major federal health study showing a widespread nationwide water contamination crisis. That's just one of the revelations in a trove of internal Environmental Protection Agency emails obtained via public information requests by the Union of Concerned Scientists. The emails show that federal scientists with the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry had determined that toxic chemicals known as PFOA and PFOS used in Teflon and other products have contaminated water supplies across the country and pose a much greater danger to human health at far lower contamination levels than the EPA had previously said was safe. So we know what's in this report. It looks bad for a whole bunch of companies, and yet the administration is simply refusing to release it? That's right. The study was blocked after EPA political appointees and White House appointees called the revelations, quote, a potential public relations nightmare, saying that publication would increase the cost of cleanups of contamination at military sites and chemical manufacturing plants. We know Scott Pruitt and Donald Trump are climate change deniers, but they have pretended the one thing they do care about is clean air and clean water. And here we see they don't actually care about clean water at all. No, they apparently do not. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt still has his job and is still deregulating those industries that pollute Americans' air and water. In an interview with NBC, Vice President Mike Pence ignored questions about Pruitt's spending and his corruption scandals and instead praised Pruitt for foisting the burden of pollution onto the public. Scott Pruitt has done an outstanding job lifting the burden of regulations that were stifling American businesses across this country. Never mind the people who live at those contaminated sites who don't even know that they're drinking contaminated water. Meanwhile, forecasters now say the U.S. should brace for another active Atlantic hurricane season this year, which officially begins on June 1st, even as hard-hit communities like Puerto Rico are still struggling from last year's hurricanes. Now, a new study from the U.S. Pacific Northwest National Laboratory confirms that powerful Atlantic hurricane storms fueled by warm warming ocean temperatures are intensifying much more rapidly than they did just 30 years ago, spinning up from zero to extremely dangerous in just hours and giving communities little time to prepare. A separate study also concludes that warmer oceans are turbocharging storms' rainfall capacity, turning them into even greater rain producers. And just a reminder, Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria last year each landed among the top five costliest hurricanes in U.S. history. In Louisiana, electric utility giant Entergy has confirmed that its PR company paid actors as much as $200 a day to pose as grassroots supporters testifying in support of their controversial proposed natural gas power plant in front of the New Orleans City Council. Entergy claims it did not know about the use of paid actors in advance, but has announced it will not charge customers for that cost. Wow. So they were paying actual crisis actors to show up and do this. Yes, they were. No wonder Republicans think the Democrats are being paid to protest by George Soros 
because that's what they're doing all the time, actually paying people to protest. Finally, some good news. In a landmark revision of statewide building codes, the California Energy Commission voted unanimously to require rooftop solar panels to be installed on all new single-family homes and multifamily buildings in the state beginning in 2020. The updated building codes also add incentives for advanced energy efficiency and were supported by the home building industry. A state study found that the higher upfront cost of energy-efficient homes with rooftop solar would be more than offset buy cheaper utility bills. Well, there's some good news. Thank you, Des. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. Yeah, it's all right. You know, we sure do talk, uh, since Donald Trump came to office, Des, I've noticed that we sure do talk about California a lot in our Green News reports. And it's not because we live here. It is because uh, California is really leading the way on the uh, the next future that we should hope to have if we're lucky and how we, how we solve these problems. It's like a whole other country. <laughs> well, that's Texas, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah. is. <laughs> but that's okay. I just had a quick follow-up, yeah. by the way, on that story about the utility giant Entergy that had used paid actors to uh, go to, to New Orleans. To pretend to protest against the thing? Yeah, yeah, at city council meetings to, propose, to, to support them. So this is not the first time, apparently, that Entergy's PR company has engaged in faking grassroots reports, uh, support. They're called uh, the Hawthorne Group, and in 2009, they were hired by the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity to uh, try to urge Congress to stop climate change cap-and-trade legislation, and uh, one of their subcontractors sent letters that had been forged to appear to be from African-American civil rights groups and Latino groups saying, we're against this, you should vote against this. So that's... Uh, they were, the fake. They were fake. They were fake totally letters. Fake. They were totally caught, and that was totally fake. See, you know what? That, as I said, that's why Republicans, that's why, you know, these, these phony journalists like James O'Keefe, why they try to go out and catch Democrats doing all this stuff, because they do it. Yeah, it's projection. And they, yeah, they think if we do it, then we'll just catch them doing it. Uh, and, yeah. That anyway. is not the case. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our uh, producer of the broadcast. My thanks as well to former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Michael Fuchs, now of the Center for American Progress, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or at your favorite podcast site where we hope you'll uh, leave a nice comment or something. Make it a little bit easier. That makes it a little easier for other people to find us as well. And while you're at Bradblog, if you stop by bradblog.com slash donate, you can help us continue to remain on your public airwaves to continue to do what we try to do every day. Thanks to those of you who have done it already and signed up for a monthly subscription of any amount you like. It is greatly appreciated. Bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. See you there. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 